You are now listening to the Nothing But Backboard Podcast with your host, Joey Jergo. Hello, hello, hello. I'm your host, Joey Jergo, and we are on episode number four of the Nothing But Backboard Podcast. I'm super excited about this episode because we've got a lot to cover in today's episode. We've got a lot to talk about in regards to the NBA with the trade deadlines, significant injuries that have happened during this time, and the implications as we get to the stretch run heading towards the playoffs. And of course, with college basketball on both the men's and the women's side, we're going to break down a little bit of the Sweet 16 matchups, what the significance are for both of those. I'm super excited about that, but I'm going to cover a few things. Uh, first thing, it's kind of a random one because I know some people were texting me and commenting uh, last episode about what was happening with my... Uh, gestures in my fingers at the bottom of the screen it wasn't really showing and they're trying to figure out exactly what was going on with that the reason for that because it was episode number three i do my threes a little differently than we're typically used to seeing especially in the nba most of you know my favorite basketball player is dirk Nowitzki, mavericks legend and of course it's kind of an international thing they throw up the threes up with the thumbs index middle finger and you see that a lot now, more recently, but that's kind of one of the trendsetters that happened with it was with Dirk Nowitzki, and of course, that's a in major influence on me, that's why I keep doing it, but of course, of course, ladies and gentlemen, we're not talking about episode number three, which you can find on Google Podcast, Red Circle, and Spotify, along with the other episodes of the NBB podcast, and you can also find it on YouTube, so I'll make this plug right now, hit that like button, share, subscribe. Share it with your family, share it with your friends, share it with your neighbors, share it with a coworker or a random stranger down the street that wants to know what's going on in the world of basketball. Please, please do so. Spread the love. I appreciate you guys so much. That's what's going on. So now you know why I have that going on. And of course, as we go into this episode, again, we got a lot to cover, but unfortunately, you can probably tell by the tone of my voice right now, we got some sad news to cover at the beginning of this episode we got to start off with the passing of earlier this week with Lakers legend Elgin Baylor, who passed away uh, due to natural causes. Uh, Elgin Baylor, 14-year career with the Los Angeles Lakers, 11-time All-Star, 10-time All-NBA selection. Arguably one of the players that can play in any era. That means whatever you want to consider the golden age of basketball, whether that's the 80s with Magic, Bird, Jordan, and then even going into the 2000s with your guys like Garnett, Duncan, Kobe, and LeBron, and Steph of today's era. Elgin Baylor is one of those guys that could transcend and achieve the same amount of success that he had at any stage, at any era of the NBA. That guy was an amazing talent, and one of my favorite stories when it comes to Elgin Baylor, and it's something that's fascinating, I, I, I remember talking um, a while ago with my dad um, while he was still with us. Um, one of the more fascinating stories about how great Elgin Baylor was and just how ridiculously dominant the top-tier players in the NBA were during this time was during the 
more famous seasons in 1961 to 1962. And the reason why that season is so significant, when you look at the MVP race, who ended up winning the MVP and all the guys that were contending for an MVP spot, Elgin Baylor found himself in amongst those guys contending for the award, despite the fact he only played 48 games in comparison to guys that played 76 to 80 games. But when you look at the MVP race and you look at the guys that were just ahead of Elgin Baylor, you got to start off with the MVP of that season, Bill Russell of the Celtics. Now, again, during that time, the dynasty of the Boston Celtics were completely in full effect. It was during their stretch run where they won their handful of titles. Bill Russell was winning his 11 titles. But the fascinating thing about it, if you just look at statistics, if you're a fan of statistics, it doesn't necessarily just indicate how great they were, but more so how dominant those guys were during that time. And I think, again, when you look at the list of players that I'm about to mention, including Baylor, those individuals could play at any stage. But when you look at Bill Russell's averages of 19 and almost 24 rebounds, it's mind-boggling. But then, of course, Wilt Chamberlain, yes, this would be the same season that Wilt Chamberlain won off for 100 points. And he finished second in the MVP voting while averaging over 50 points and 26 rebounds. Now, for some people, that sounds like a my career stat line. That just seems like a regular thing. But to do that in the NBA, especially playing against some great bigs like Russell and playing against guys like Bob Pettit, he was still able to put up numbers like that, which is absolutely mind-boggling. And then third, Oscar Robinson. Now, this one for Oscar Robinson, this was the same year that he averaged a triple-double, the first of its kind, which has later been replicated by Russell Westbrook. But when you look at the first-ever triple-double average in a season that was posted by Oscar Robinson, Oscar Robinson put up just under 31, 12.5 boards, and 11 assists. And then here's where Elgin Baylor comes into play. And what just boggles my mind when you look at what Elgin Baylor did, and especially in an era where if you weren't necessarily the biggest, tallest guy without a three-point line that we're so accustomed to in today's modern game, how effective could you be? Elgin Baylor put up numbers of almost 38.5, just under 19 rebounds, and 4.5 and assists. It's absolutely mind-boggling to think what kind of dominance that Elgin Baylor had, despite the fact playing against the dynasty like the Celtics and all these other great teams like the Philadelphia Warriors and the Cincinnati Royals, Cincinnati Kings, pardon me, to see what Elgin Baylor did and how much his game and his talent has affected the generations that proceeded after him and uh, Dr. J. Julius Irving NBA legend Hall of Fame famer mentioned how influenced he was by Elgin Baylor his style of play you can kind of see if you guys have been able to watch any highlights of Elgin Baylor you see the kind of style that he played models a lot of what you see in today's game one of the first times I ever ever watched do a Euro step was back in the 60s by Elgin Baylor and his finishing skills around the rim going up and under going against big guys like Chamberlain and like Russell Elgin Baylor was the first guy to do it and unfortunately yeah people look at his finals record of being 0 and 8 but again 
he had to play the Boston Celtics. And Boston Celtics, again, who have had arguably the greatest stretch run in professional sports, winning 11 of 12. Unfortunately, he was one of those victims that were, had to be a part of that reign of dominance by the Celtics. But I, I say this to stress out how influential Elgin Baylor was, despite his name not being put up in the lights of guys like Magic and Bird and Jordan. Elgin Baylor, for my generation and generations to come, I hope we do not do a disservice to guys like him who have created such a vital mark on the game of basketball that we know and love today. So again, uh, rest in power to Elgin Baylor. Uh, My condolences and prayers go out to his family. And another transitioning from um, one unfortunate news to another, um, which came out as of um, last night, was uh, GCU's senior, Oscar Freire, who died in a car accident. And it's really sad to say, and for me, um, and I'm sure a lot of people that are listening to it right now, because it's so close to home, um, he was a kid that was born and raised in Oakland, um, but this accident happened in Lodi, so it's not too far away from Sacramento. Um, watching Oscar Freire this year, especially during his uh, performance against Iowa in the uh, first round of the NCAA tournament, as well as some of his highlights against big schools like Illinois and Duke, seeing some of his highlight plays, you can tell that guy could play. And he was a special young talent, and you've seen his high school coach reach out um, just expressing how great of a, a character and a high-volume quality guy that he was. Um, you hate to see um, guys at the age that they are um, lose their life so early. So, And again, this is just my condolences not only to the Freyer family, but I think for everyone, especially during this time, this is a very important time for us to be encouraging, to be positive, to lift up one another because – Sometimes life is short. We're not we're not able to um, live our fullest life if we're if we're so concerned about uh, the unknown. So I I say this to um, make people aware of just enjoy every single precious moment that you're a part of. Enjoy every single loved ones, friends, people that are surrounding you. Um, just just be positive, be uplifting, be encouraging to one another. We need it now more than ever. And so, again, my condolences to uh, Oscar Freire's family, um, including his sister who was a part of the, the car accident and the CHP officers that um, were injured during this accident. Um, again, let's just let's 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 make this world a better place. Let's make this a better place than it was um, and that, that it has been. Uh, regardless of your political views, what you think, whether you're a fan of one team or the other, we don't have enough time for that on earth to argue our way through life when we can be loving and caring for one another. But if you give me a little bit, we're going to try to work back into more of a, a jolly, happy version of myself because, as I mentioned before, there's a lot to cover. There's a lot to cover when you talk about um, both the professional and the collegiate side 
with the NBA and college basketball, with everything going on. So <clears throat> I'm going to do my best right now. We're going to slowly transition back to the, the Joey that you know, uh, more encouraging, super uplifting, and kind of get get my opinion on uh, the trade deadlines, what that means for certain teams, give you a little bit my thoughts and opinions on what this means, especially with the trade deadline being over and done with, and I'm super, super excited about it, so let's dive right into the trades. So, the trade deadline uh, occurred tonight, so it ended uh, earlier this afternoon. At the time of recording, we're looking at March 25th on Thursday, but I think for some people, you could argue that the trade deadline or the trade deadline market started um, last Friday, which involved with the Houston Rockets and the Milwaukee Bucks. Now, again, if you look at the Eastern Conference, you look at certain teams like Boston and Milwaukee and Philadelphia, Miami as well. How are these teams going to respond? to the moves that Brooklyn has made throughout the regular season. Of course, the big blockbuster trade with James Harden earlier in the year, and of course, um, acquiring Blake Griffin via buyout from the Detroit Pistons. How are these other top contending Eastern Conference teams going to respond? Well, Houston started off by trading away, sorry, Milwaukee trading away, DJ Augustine and DJ Wilson, along with a 2021 first-round pick. It's a top nine protected, and I'll get a little bit more details about like all these provisions, protected, all that stuff, along with the 2023 first-round pick from Milwaukee in exchange for Ranios Karuks, a 2021 second-round pick, which is going to be swapped between both teams, a 2022 first-round pick, and the bigger piece of this trade is forward P.J. Tucker. Now, I'm going to stress the fact that I said forward P.J. Tucker because a lot of you guys noticed over the last several seasons with Houston when they played their small ball with James Harden, Chris Paul, Russell Westbrook, P.J. Tucker was unfortunately being put in a position where he was playing out of what he was accustomed to playing earlier on in his career and having to play a small ball center listed at about six seven six eight. So again, he has to guard guys like Embiid, Porzingis, Anthony Davis, bigs that are garnering over about seven foot, and yet P.J. Ducker did hold his ground. Now, <clears throat> what is the significance of this trade for Milwaukee? How does this help propel Milwaukee? Now again, I talked about in the previous episode with Brooklyn, the big thing for them is making sure that their key core pieces are staying healthy. Now, they just got back Drew Holiday uh, a few weeks ago. If they continue to stay healthy with Giannis, Middleton, Holiday, now adding P.J. Tucker to the mix. Now, granted, P.J. Tucker's not a guy that you consider an all-star caliber player, but he's a guy, and a lot of people have gone on record to say that if there's a person that is willing to sacrifice their, their life, body, and limbs, to win, P.J. Tucker embodies that. And especially, again, when you look at a guy that had to play out of position, P.J. Tucker really does fit that mold. But what does this do for Milwaukee from a, from a standpoint? How does he fit with uh, the rotation, with the roster, what that looks like? And to me, P.J. Tucker, obviously, on the offensive end, over the last several seasons, he's been... You could argue the best corner shooter from the three-point line over the last several seasons, and I don't see that role necessarily changing once he goes to Milwaukee, especially spacing the floor for those three all-stars that I mentioned before. 
But the big thing, and I think the bigger impact that P.J. Tucker will bring to Milwaukee is on the defensive end and the versatility that he's able to provide for that squad. And again, you can look at certain lineups where P.J. Tucker's playing the four and have Giannis playing the five. Or you can play P.J. Tucker at the three, have Lopez play the five with Giannis along with Middleton, Holiday, DiVincenzo, whoever you have in that rotation. P.J. Tucker's able to guard multiple positions. So that provides versatility for the Bucks on the defensive end. And again, he helps space the floor for those guys going forward, who again, Milwaukee, we're going to kind of talk about the run that they've been on later on in this episode, but that's one of the trades that may have significant ramifications as we get towards these last handful of games before we get to the NBA playoffs. So that's the first trade that started off. And again, we're going to go through every trade, not every single trade that I'm going to report to you guys. I'm going to go over in great detail because some of them are being moved due to a few reasons, and we'll kind of break that down right now. Some of those moves were to either clear up a roster space, whether they're going to be looking to pick up players via the buyout market, free agency, uh, G League call-ups potentially. Some of those moves are influenced by that. So some guys have been moved to clear that out. Another significant one for some people and for some franchises is because of cap space. Now, just to give you guys a bit of an idea, when you look at the projected cap going into the next NBA season, there's two teams that have a projected cap space of over $50 million. That's the San Antonio Spurs and the New York Knicks. Now, again, and we'll kind of go a little bit more for the New York Knicks as we go later on as we continue to list off some of these um, reported trades. Some of these teams are looking towards the future. And that's another reason why a lot of these trades also happen is to be help propel them going towards the rebuild process. So, staking on that same date, the Clippers and Kings engage in a trade. The Kings get, now pardon me on this pronunciation, Nafondu Kabungale and cash considerations for a future second round pick that the Los Angeles Clippers are acquiring. But here's where the big one comes in. <clears throat> so again, we're going to be going through all the, again, reported trades that were made. <clears throat> and again, we're going to kind of break down some of these big ones. And we're going to start off with this one. And the first one. Chicago Bulls and the Orlando Magic agree to a trade that sends Nikola Vucevic, two-time All-Star, and Al Farouk Aminu to Chicago in exchange for Wendell Carter Jr., Otto Porter Jr., and two future first-round picks. Now, when I mention Chicago and we talk about the trade deadline, a lot of people were hoping and clamoring to hopefully see Zach Levine be traded towards a contender or playoff team. Now, granted, Chicago's in a position to make the playoffs, but, of course, a lot of people are hoping to see Levine move to a team that has championship aspirations. This move, while it may not necessarily translate to Chicago being a title contender, it definitely helps solidify them as a playoff team, not only for this season potentially, but for future seasons to come, especially with the productivity that Nikola Vucevic has shown in Orlando. Despite a lot of injuries occurring, you're able to see what Vucevic is able to do. And again, when I look at Orlando, and we're going to be talking a lot about Orlando during this trade portion of the episode, Orlando has gone full-fledged rebuild mode. 
And so acquiring a promising young big and Wendell Carter Jr. helps propel that, but it does raise a question, at least to me, because not only do you have Carter coming back in that trade, but they still have another guy who, oh, by the way, they were both drafted in the same year, which was the same draft class that had Luka, Trey Young, DeAndre Ayton, and Mo Bamba. Now the question is, are you looking at a future in Orlando that has both Wendell Carter Jr. and Mo Bamba? I don't know. Time will tell. That's going to be something to look out for if you are an Orlando Magic fan. What's going to be happening as you guys go through this rebuilding process? Moving on, and this might be one of my perplexing trades that um, that transpired during the trade deadline on this day was between Portland and Toronto, where Portland acquired Norman Powell, a perennial six-man-of-the-year contender, but Portland gave up Gary Trent Jr. and Rodney Hood. And the reason why I find this perplexing, yes, Norman Powell is a guy that can get buckets off the bench. He can be a microwave, a guy that can get it going, especially from the perimeter, which, again, especially in today's game, helps space the floor for guys like Damian Lillard, C.J. McCollum, Carmelo Anthony. But that's exactly what Gary Trent was doing. And what's also very perplexing when you look at both sides of the coin, in particular with Portland, Norman Powell is expected to hit free agency after this season. So another point to bring up when it comes to certain trades a lot of teams have a, a risk-reward situation where it's either you're going to have a guy potentially look at him from a long-term standpoint or it's going to be a rental for the next few months towards the end of the regular season and the postseason. This might be one of the situations where Norman Powell either stays with Portland beyond this season or it's going to be a three-month rental for Norman Powell, and even also when you look at Toronto side, Gary Trent Jr. is also expected to hit the market, and they be they may be demanding big money. Both those guys, you may see possibly moving teams at the end of this season. But, again, Norman Powell, amongst guys that have shot over 200 three-point attempts, ranks sixth in percentages at over 43%. It'll be interesting to see how he fits in the system, again, with guys like Damian Lillard, CJ obviously coming back from his injury. Norman Powell could possibly be a guy that fits in with the Blazers as they potentially become a dark horse and make a run for the title. And again, we're still kind of waiting on uh, hopefully a pending return of Yusuf Nurkic. What will Portland be able to provide going into the stretch run? going in the playoffs I don't know does Norman Powell move the needle for him not not quite sure especially with how well that Gary Trent has played throughout the regular season especially at times when he was filling in for McCollum we'll see we'll see how that goes but I'm really excited to hear about that now here's one of the bigger trades and while the names may not be eye-opening to you there's a significance to this trade and what i find so baffling so in a three-team trade that involved the sixers the new york knicks and the oklahoma city thunder yep i said the oklahoma city thunder and this is why we're going to get into it the philadelphia 76ers acquired george hill along with ignas brasdesic and the knicks acquired terrence ferguson vincent poyer writes to emir prisdic 2021 second round pick a 2024 second round pick and then the Oklahoma City Thunder, in return, get Austin Rivers, Tony Bradley, 
2025 and a 2026 second round draft picks from the Philadelphia 76ers. And the reason why that part to me boggles my mind, and I mean absolutely blows my mind, ladies and gentlemen, is when you look at the Oklahoma City Thunder, and especially in the last several years, since transitioning from the era of Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook to now being in a rebuild mode with a budding star and Shea Gilgis-Alexander, the Oklahoma City Thunder have this many draft picks. So I'm going to give you guys that are listening to this or watching this, I'm going to give you guys about three seconds to take a guess about how many draft picks they have over the next seven seasons. If your answer is the number 34, you are absolutely correct. 34 draft picks over the next seven seasons. That sounds like a number that you would probably associate with the NFL as far as how many draft picks you have per year. So that's on average of close to five, close to five draft picks per year for the Oklahoma City Thunder. And it splits right down the middle, 17 in the first, 17 in the second. Now, does this mean that Oklahoma City is going to keep all of their picks? Probably not. You could potentially see, especially during the offseason, where they're able to flip some of those draft picks, potentially package a couple to move up in certain drafts. You can potentially see them using those as part of leverage in certain deals to acquire certain players. I don't know, but that's something to kind of keep an eye out for with 34 draft picks. If if you were Sam Presti and you were the Oklahoma City Thunder front office, what exactly would you do with 34 draft picks over the next seven seasons? If, I, if it were me, try to package them. Try to see if you can move up in certain drafts, especially with this upcoming draft as an example. A lot of talent that you can surround with SGA. I don't know. It's going to be a fun one to, to look out for. So, again, that trade obviously has some major ramifications going forward in certain drafts. Moving on, these two trades involve, and, of course, some of my friends and of course, local listeners to this podcast. This involves the Sacramento Kings. We start off with DeLon Wright being acquired from the Detroit Pistons in exchange for Kojo, Corey Joseph, the 2021 second round pick, and the 2024 second round pick to Detroit. DeLon Wright helps fortify their bench. That has been kind of a big question mark for Sacramento, especially with the emergence of Tyrese Halliburton, and the up-and-down play of Buddy Heald, although he stepped it up over the last several weeks, bringing Tyrese Halliburton off the bench to play in the backcourt alongside De'Aaron Fox. And again, we're going to mention his name in a little bit. But getting a guy like DeLon Wright, who can help fill both those spots as a backup one or backup two, with the Kings potentially making a late run to be a part of this play-in tournament that's going to happen at the end of the regular season, this could help solidify some of their issues coming off the bench. I'm excited for him, I think. I don't know. Again, I'm not a Kings fan. Of course, he's a former Mavericks player, so I guess I'll give him some love. But I think the one that breaks my heart the most is that Sacramento Kings also, on trade deadline day, traded away Nemanja Bialica to the Miami Heat for Mo Harkless and Chris Silva. And again, I say this with a bit of sarcasm because when I think of guys that I see a bit of myself in in today's game, I look at guys like Joe Ingles, guys that can rarely, not not the most explosive athletes, 
And Nemanja Bielitz <laughs> fits in that category. Guys that can shoot, not the best athletes, but get stuff done. And Nemanja Bielitsa goes to Miami. That's not going to do anything significantly for Miami. But I think with Sacramento, with Mo Harkless, who was acquired by Miami, hopefully being a part of the rotation to help bring Miami back to the finals. We're going to talk about them a little bit more. Could he help? Could he help the Kings? Maybe. We'll see. But again, Kings being a part of trade deadline, making some moves. And of course, just to kind of cap it off for the Kings, they also acquired Terrence Davis from Toronto in exchange for a 2021 second round pick. Moving on. San Antonio Spurs acquired Marquise Chris and cash considerations from the Golden State Warriors. In exchange, Golden State gets draft rights to Caddy Lalon. We're going to move on from that. Because Golden State was also part of another trade during trade deadline day where they sent away Brad Wanamaker, a 2022 second round pick, and cash considerations to Charlotte in exchange for a 2025 second round pick. Now again, Parts of this, if you look at Golden State side, probably trying to free up some roster space because, again, you got guys coming from the G League, potentially Jeremy Lin. Who knows? Don't forget about that acquisition. That could potentially be a reason why Golden State made that move. But if you're Charlotte, you're trying to patch up the uh, broken ship that, that just occurred with the injury to the mellow ball. And, again, we're going to go over injuries in a little bit. But that could just help solidify a little bit more depth in their backcourt. Although they still have guys like Devontae Graham, Scary Terry, Terry Rozier. That might be a move just to help solidify their depth in the backcourt. Now, one that didn't really catch my eye until they officially reported it was a three-team trade that also involved, again, the Chicago Bulls, the Boston Celtics, and the Washington Wizards. Now, in this trade... Chicago acquired Daniel Tice, Javante Green, Troy Brown Jr. In exchange, the Boston Celtics acquire Luke Cornett and Mo Wagner. And for the Wizards, the Wizards acquired Daniel Gaffert and Chandler Hutchison. So there's a lot of bigs in this trade that have been moved around. And of course, Daniel Tice, to me, was probably the big name that comes out of it that was moved around because he was, for a good portion of the season, starting big man for the Celtics. And they're moving on from him. Could we see a guy like Mo Wagner, who was a part of the Wizards, could he potentially be the guy that kind of fits in that role and steps in, especially with injuries to Tristan Thompson? Who knows? But that'll be a fun one to look out for. Again, it's kind of a very under-the-radar move for the Celtics, Bulls, and the Wizards. And while we look at other big men being moved, the Denver Nuggets and the Cleveland Cavaliers have accepted to a deal that sends JaVel McGee back to Denver. Almost back to where it all started. So after he was in Washington in the early stages of his career, he goes back to Denver in exchange for Isaiah Hartenstein and two future second-round picks. And again, when you look at Cleveland, I talked about it in a previous episode as they're doing their rebuild. They got a centerpiece of a big man in Jared Allen earlier in the James Harden trade. Cleveland was starting to make moves to kind of clear out some space for their young guys and part of their rebuilding process. So does JaVale McGee help Denver potentially? Because when you look at Denver, at least to me, what hurt them at the beginning of this season and kind of got them off to a struggle was the fact that they lost a lot of their key pieces 
off the bench and guys that were backups, guys like Mason Plumley, Jeremy Grant, um, Malik Beasley, some of those guys, losing them hurt and hindered Denver at the beginning of the season. But, of course, they're, now they're starting to right the ship, um, especially on the defensive end. Now JaVale McGee helps provide some of that, that depth playing behind Nikola Jokic for Denver. We'll see. Now, I mentioned earlier one of the more perplexing trades that occurred with um, Toronto and Portland. This one, to me, may have a lot of question marks in regards to one of the teams involved, and that involves the Los Angeles Clippers and the Atlanta Hawks, in which the Hawks acquired Lou Williams, two second-round picks, one in 2023 and one in 2027, in exchange for former All-Star Rajon Rondo going to Los Angeles. And the reason why this is very perplexing to me and very confusing to me, number one, Rajon Rondo was one of the main targets that the Clippers were trying to acquire during this past offseason. But what makes this one all the more interesting is the fact that not only did the Clippers give up Lou Williams, but then they also gave up future second-round picks. Now, again, some second-round picks may have some significance. Sometimes they don't. But I think when you throw in other assets, when it could have possibly been just a straight-up Lou Williams for Rajon Rondo... That, to me, it, it doesn't necessarily add up. And the reason why I also stress out why this could be perplexing, of course, this could turn out to be a great trade for Los Angeles because although Lou Williams has kind of come alive over the last month of basketball, Rajon Rondo probably addresses one of the biggest issues that the Los Angeles Clippers have had throughout this entire year. Granted, they've had the best three-point shooting team based off percentages this entire year. Yes, they have two All-Stars in Kawhi Leonard and Paul George that can create their own, but in regards to playmaking, especially with their point guards like Pat Beverly and all their other point guards like Terrence Mann, the Clippers rank in the bottom third of the league, so that means the bottom ten of all NBA teams as far as assist percentages based off their backcourt, so, and specifically their point guards. Rajon Rondo is one of those guys that you know, despite the fact that in the regular seasons in the last few years, Rajon Rondo is not a guy that was lighting things up like he was in Boston. But come playoff time, and especially when you look at last season's run from the Los Angeles Lakers, their cross-town rivals, not even cross-town, they're like cross-arena, cross-stadium, how would you consider that? Like... 50 yards away. I don't know what you would call those like rivals, but they they have they share the same they share the same cent, center. I don't know. That's weird. Sable Center's both their homes. Not the point. But when you look at what the Clippers are able to get out of Rajon Rondo, especially come playoff time, which I think is the biggest thing and the biggest concern for Clippers fans is how are we going to respond in the playoffs after blowing a 3-1 lead last year to the Denver Nuggets? Does Rajon Rondo help propel the Clippers going forward? That is the hope, and I think that was the intention behind the move that the Clippers made in acquiring the former All-Star in Rajon Rondo. But again, he's also coming off some injuries that have hindered his start to the season with Atlanta, and he was a big part of what was being hopeful for Atlanta as they make their move towards being playoff contenders with their young talent like Trey Young, John Collins, who again was probably another name that 
people were hoping to see be moved. I'm sure there was a lot of trade interest for John Collins. He was one of those players that was not a part of a trade, along with guys like Kyle Lowry and Lonzo Ball. Speaking of Lonzo Ball, his former teammate, as we move on to the next trade, J.J. Redick and Nicola Melli of the New Orleans Pelicans are being moved to Dallas. That's right. We're getting a shout-out. And for some people that know, J.J. Redick was one of the main reasons why I got into Duke basketball along with the 20, 2001 national title team with Jay Williams, Mike Dunleavy, Carlos Boozer. Um, J.J. Redick was a main reason why I started really, really loving Duke basketball. And, of course, he goes to my favorite NBA team. But not only that, in exchange, the Pelicans acquired James Johnson, Wesa Wundu, a 2021 second-round pick, and some cash considerations. Now, this goes for both sides of the coin. This could potentially just be salary dumps going forward because both J.J. Redick and James Johnson, who are making at least over $13 million in their contracts, their contracts are expiring at the end of the regular season. But to me... The biggest piece of this trade is for Dallas in acquiring J.J. Redick, who is a sniper. He's a sharpshooter. And when you look at the struggles that Dallas had at the beginning of the year, outside of all the COVID issues with five of their top eight guys in their rotations being out due to health and safety protocols and injuries, and of course the big move during the offseason, which sent away Seth Curry to Philadelphia in exchange for Josh Richardson, Dallas was struggling from the perimeter. They were, at one point throughout the regular season, ranked dead last in three-point shooting, not only in makes, but also in percentages. And that's been obviously a key component for Dallas is having success at the perimeter shooting last season. But now adding a guy like J.J. Redick helps space the floor. How well does he fit in with Luka and the rest of that offense? Great. But, of course, I think, again, if you look at Dallas, where they could also make that next step to potentially being a team that's knocking on the door of title contending may have to be coming on the defensive end, which we're going to get into in a little bit after that. So that's another trade to talk about. And, again, as I mentioned earlier, when you talk about the Orlando Magic, who, again, were a part of the rebuilding process, they had two big trades that occurred. And we're going to talk about the first one, which involves Evan Fournier, being traded to Boston for Jeff Teague, who is expected to be waived by Orlando, and two future second-round picks. Now, Evan Fournier, yes, while granted he's not considered an all-star caliber, he's a very high-quality basketball player. He helps do things on the offensive end. At times, he can be a guy that can carry an offense, and he was doing that, especially with Orlando, with their limitations on the offensive end, especially around the perimeter. Adding Evan Fournier, to a rotation that already has Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Kimba Walker. That may be the shot of energy that the Boston Celtics need, especially had they've been struggling over these last couple of weeks. Adding a sharpshooter, adding a guy that can help create plays, and especially in the system that Brad Steven has, where it's a bit more free-flowing. They've got guys that are able to create, and adding another guy like Evan Fournier definitely helps take them potentially to that the place that they need to be and to only give up two future second round picks, which again, Boston has been hoarding, especially with a lot of trades that they've had over the last several years with Brooklyn, when they were trying to make their title bust run with KG Paul Pierce and all those guys, Boston's giving away some of their assets. And of course 
Jeff Teague is going to expect it to be waived. Who knows where he ends up, but that's the big piece for them. And then, of course, as I mentioned, the second, actually now it's technically the third trade that involves Orlando, another one of their core pieces is Aaron Gordon, who's being shipped to Denver along with Gary Clark in exchange for Gary Harris, R.J. Hampton, and a future first-round pick. Now, what makes this significant? If you're a Denver Nuggets fan, I would rejoice because you add a guy who brings a lot of qualities similar to Jeremy Grant that you were missing, and at times you are still missing throughout this regular season as far as having a very vital perimeter defender that has to go against guys like LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, especially those last two names and LeBron out in the Western Conference. And of course, you can throw in guys like Devin Booker, Luka Doncic, um, and even some of those stretch bigs out in the Western Conference. Aaron Gordon helps provide that versatility on the defensive end if you're Denver. Now again, we're still waiting to see if Aaron Gordon continue to make those those next steps to being an all-star that people have touted him as being with all this potential. Obviously, we know about his athletic ability. We've seen him improve his skill where he's kind of gone from being essentially Blake Griffin in his first few years where he was a super athletic rim runner and a pick and roll to now being more perimeter oriented and playing a little bit more outside. Is he able to take those next steps? And again, when you look at what Denver has right now, obviously they still have two guys that can create their own. And Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray. But of course, we're also going to see if Michael Porter Jr. continues to make the strides that he's making. Aaron Gordon now also fits in that in that same uh, category along with Porter Jr. As far as guys that you could possibly see being that third guy to help make Denver um, a more legitimate contender going out of the Western Conference. So that's another move for them to look out for. But I think arguably the biggest trade of the trade deadline involves the Miami Heat in acquiring former All-Star Victor Oladipo from Houston in exchange for Kelly Olenek, Avery Bradley, and a 2022 draft pick swap. Now, when we talk about draft pick swap, a lot of times in these scenarios when they talk about picks being swapped it's just essentially just moving from place to place sometimes in other situations they'll talk about how we'll swap the best available picks that means whatever pick is ranked higher that team will keep the best draft pick and then the team that's drafting later on in the second round will keep it this one is just going to be a straight up draft pick swap and the reason why i find this one very interesting when you look at Victor Oladipo going to Miami when you add a guy that has a similar game to him in regards to Jimmy Butler and all of the pieces that they have in Miami. Obviously, this isn't one of those moves that, in essence, provides that veteran leadership because Miami has that. They have that in droves with guys like Gordon Drogic, again, Trevor Reza, who was a part of a trade uh, earlier on this month. But Victor Oladipo is another guy that can get his own, especially playing alongside Butler, Bam Adebayo, in the system that Miami has, kind of like a grit and grind culture where they play more positionless basketball. Victor Oladipo could help propel Miami to get back to the NBA Finals and potentially contend with Houston. But of course, the big thing is, can Victor Oladipo stay healthy? That is going to be the biggest question as we go forward with Uh, the rest of this regular season. And speaking of the regular season, 
we're going to dive a little bit into the standings. And, of course, we talk about my teams of the week and the players of the week. But, of course, with March Madness happening and all that going on, was I'll be honest with everyone here on this episode. It was not centered around the NBA and watching a lot of their games. But I really want to highlight a few teams um, as my teams of the week. Um, or at least during the stretch. And I'm going to highlight the two teams that are on top of the Eastern Conference right now in the Philadelphia Sixers and the Milwaukee Bucks. Of course, Milwaukee right now is riding an eight-game winning streak. They're 9-1 and one in their last ten games. Giannis is looking like the reigning, defending, two-time most valuable player, especially the quality of games I've been playing. And we're going to talk a little bit more about him in just a second. But when you look at Milwaukee... On an eight-game winning streak, they're finally getting healthy. You're seeing the emergence of Bobby Portis as potentially a guy that can help move the needle for them. And, of course, with the acquisition of P.J. Tucker, Milwaukee could be a team that may find themselves as that, that team that can knock off everyone's favorite at this point, Brooklyn. And they'll finally make their way to the NBA Finals for the first time since they had a certain guy named uh, Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I don't know if you guys ever heard of him. But the other team that I mentioned with the Philadelphia 76ers, and the reason why I want to highlight them, and again, I'm going to throw out an honorable mention to the Atlanta Hawks, who, despite being on a two-game losing streak, just before that, they were riding a nine-game winning streak. Now they find themselves in the thick of things in the playoff picture, and especially with that, since that move with Nate McMillan, they find themselves biting potentially for top four seed out in the East. That's a team to look out for. But when we talk about Philadelphia, and of course the big injury to Joel Embiid, we weren't sure how Philadelphia was going to respond. We weren't sure if they were going to be able to hold that top spot, yet they still find themselves 9-1 and over the last 10 games. They're still holding down that number one seed out East. And when you look at guys like Tobias Harris, Ben Simmons, some of their pieces that are help keeping the ship afloat for Philadelphia. And with Joel Embiid hopefully coming back within the next couple of weeks, time will tell. But those are the guys and the teams that I want to highlight out in the East and out West. Two teams that I want to highlight for you guys is the Utah Jazz. Yes, I know. The same Utah Jazz that has the best record in basketball. Yeah, I know and the Los Angeles Clippers, who find themselves on a four-game winning streak and now sit third in the Western Conference. Now, with the Clippers, again, as I mentioned with the whole Rondo trade, that, again, may not pay dividends in the regular season. That may not be something that's going to be like, wow, Rajon Rondo is going to be the guy that gets us a top two or potentially the top seed out west. But again, we're not looking necessarily at the regular season, especially when we talk about recent history with the Los Angeles Clippers. We're talking about the postseason. So, again, keep out for that. But, of course, Utah still has the best record in basketball. They still have the highest point differential in the league over a point ahead of Milwaukee. Now, the big question I think a lot of people are asking, can Utah hold down the number one seed out west? The answer to that is probably, and especially when you look at some of the teams that we're going to be diving into in the standings, some of these teams are dealing with injuries, and a lot of trades have happened with some of these teams out west, and we're going to dive a little bit more into some of the injuries that have major ramifications for the playoffs. Utah is one of those teams, 
thankfully for them, have not been affected by a significant injury to any of their top players. So those are my teams of the week. And so when we look at players of the week, there's a few guys that I'm going to mention on both sides of the coin. If you're a Sacramento Kings fan, I'm going to mention your boy, Swipe of the Fox, De'Aaron Fox, especially over his last seven games, averaging over 30 points. But I think the biggest part of what's significant about this run is not only is he putting up numbers and shooting over 54% from the field, but in the last seven games, Sacramento finds himself 5-2 and two in those seven games. And they're going to be a team that we're going to talk about when we look at the standings going forward. But that's one player I want to mention out of the Western Conference, as well as Dame Time, Damian Lillard, second leading leader in points in the regular season. He's helped keeping... Portland afloat, especially with all these trades. Hopefully players coming back from injury. Damian Lillard, during these last seven games, leading scorer amongst all players out West and actually all of the NBA. But when I look at the Eastern Conference, the two names that I want to mention, of course, as I talked about before, the Greek freak, Giannis Antetokounmpo. He has the highest plus minus out of all players during that stretch of time. And not only that, but the big thing that I want to point out to everyone at home, when you look at not only the fact that he's averaged nearly a triple-double in his last six games, but when you look at his line of 57 from the field, 40% from three, but this is probably the biggest one if you're a Bucks fan, you're happy to see this, 81% from the free-throw line. If Giannis, especially with his style of play, him getting to the line as often as he does. If he continues to knock down at least 80% of his free throws, look out, ladies and gentlemen. Milwaukee is going to be a team that you may not want to play if you're in the playoff picture out east. And then, again, as I talked about with the other team out east, Tobias Harris, to me, when you look at his averages of just over 23 a game and his split of 50 from the field, 48 from the three-point line and 93% from the free-throw line. He is arguably the biggest reason why Philadelphia still finds themselves on top of the Eastern Conference, which right now we're going to dive right into the standings. So when you look at the standings right now, out east, of course, I just mentioned the Sixers, your number one seed, followed by Milwaukee Bucks, who sit just percentage points ahead of Brooklyn, despite the fact both teams are two games behind Philadelphia, sitting at two and three, respectively. Then you look at number four with the Charlotte Hornets. Again, the biggest question mark, are they going to be able to hang on to the playoff spot with LaMelo Ball possibly being out for the regular season, although there have been some reports that we're going to talk about in a little bit that may say otherwise. But we don't know if Charlotte will be able to hold the top four seed or much less even a playoff spot. But we're going to find out with that. Then we're going to follow with the last four teams that are in the playoff picture right now. Five through eight, we got the New York Knicks, the aforementioned Atlanta Hawks, the Miami Heat, and the Boston Celtics, who again, especially when you look at those last two teams that I mentioned, making some trades, will that propel them to go back to what they were projected to be a top four seed in the playoffs? Time will tell. But the big thing I want to point out for a lot of you guys is that when you look at playoff seeds 6 through 11, there's a four-game difference. 
It was a four-game difference between your sixth seed, Atlanta Hawks, all the way down to your 11th seed, Toronto Raptors, all separated by four games. And I'm going to mention this now. When you talk about the play-in tournament, the significant part about the play-in tournament is that it greatly affects seeds 7 through 10. By that I mean if you're a 7th or 8th seed, the 7th and 8th seed play to get the 7th spot and secure their place in the playoffs. And the loser of that game has to play the winner of the 9 versus 10 seed. And what that means is the loser of the 7-8 and the 9-10 and 10 seed, the winner of that best of three series, will be the number 8 seed and find themselves in the playoffs. So again, these teams that I've mentioned, and we can even throw in the 4-5 and because they're only a half game ahead of the 6 seed. So we might as well just mention 4-11. through 11. We've got the Hornets, Knicks, Hawks, Heat, Celtics, Pacers, Bulls, and the Raptors with... Surprisingly, the Cleveland Cavaliers just a game back of Toronto sitting at 12. There's a lot to play for as we get to these last 20-plus games of the regular season. And out west, when you look at the Western Conference, of course we have the Utah Jazz sitting at number one. Three games clear of the Phoenix Suns who sit at the number two seed, followed by the Clippers at third. And the declining Los Angeles Lakers loses a four straight, of course, when you look at the significant injuries to LeBron and AD. This is this is going to be something to look out for in these next few weeks and how the Lakers respond with these significant injuries. Then we're following up with the bottom four seeds, five, six through eight. We got the Nuggets at five, Portland, Dallas, and San Antonio. And again, as I mentioned before with the play-in, and what the significance are when you look at seeds 8 through 12. Matter of fact, 8 through 13 is separated by four games. So when you look at San Antonio sitting at 8, followed by Memphis, Golden State, Sacramento, the Pelicans, and the Thunder, all within four games of that play-in spots, that's something to look out for, too. So if you're any of those teams, especially when you look at Golden State, hopefully you're going to get Steph Curry back in a hopefully in a week or so. That's something that potentially could be a thing to look out for. for. But, again, we're going to keep that in mind. Because, again, with the trades happening, and, again, we're going to dive right now into injuries and what the significance are for those teams that are affected by it. Of course, as I mentioned, LeBron James, high ankle sprain. He's expected to be out four to six weeks. If you're a fantasy owner like myself of LeBron, this hurts a lot. Okay, So that's something to look out for too because especially with Anthony Davis being out, LeBron has kind of helped keep the Lakers afloat near the top portion of the Western Conference playoff picture. But with them currently sitting at a four-game losing streak, who knows what the situation is going to be like for the Lakers once LeBron comes back, as well as Anthony Davis, who, again, reported he's supposed to be out at least two or three weeks. What might happen if Anthony Davis is expected to be out a little bit longer? Because, again, he's still dealing with an Achilles injury. Those are not easy injuries to recover. Of course, it took Durant over a full season to return from. Time will tell on that picture when you look at the Los Angeles Lakers. And, again, as I mentioned with Golden State, Steph Curry with the bruised tailbone. His is not going to be as long of a timetable as the aforementioned two stars that I've mentioned, but he'll be out for a week, and especially in a stretch where they find themselves on a three-game losing streak, now sitting at that 10 spot, that illustrious 10 spot, only two games ahead of teams like Sacramento and New Orleans 
or that 10 seed for the play-in, who knows what the status of Golden State's going to be once Steph Curry comes back. And speaking of a team, as I mentioned in the Eastern Conference, Joel Embiid with the Sixers, we hope he comes back. Who knows what his status is going to be, but with how Philadelphia is playing, there's not a whole lot to worry about them holding a top seed in the East. It may not be the number one seed, but it'll probably more than likely still be a top two or top three seed out East. But of course, the one that I mentioned before with LaMelo Ball and the Hornets, his expected timetable was supposed to be out for the rest of the year with his right wrist fracture. But there are new reports that are suggesting that he's going to be reevaluated in four weeks. So there is a chance that LaMelo could be back in time for the last several games of the regular season, which could have significant playoff implications for the Hornets, who, again, are hoping to get back to the playoffs for the first time in a few seasons. And LaMelo Ball arguably could be considered the best player on the Hornets roster alongside Gordon Hayward. So, those are the injuries that I've been talking about, what that looks like for those teams going forward, because again, the names that I've mentioned, and again, of course, with Kevin Durant, of course, when we talk about injuries, his timetable, hopefully he'll be back in the next couple of weeks. There's going to be a lot of significance with these moves, what that looks like for the playoffs. I'm excited to talk more about that, but we're going to transition into March Madness and the NCAA tournament. Now, when we talk about March and that second word, madness, if you look at the men's side, no perfect brackets remain, and that's all right. That's the that's the facts of life. We haven't had March Madness. We haven't had an NCAA tournament in two years. That's what we're expecting. That's what's supposed to happen, and that's all right, but we're going to go into the women's side. we got to give the ladies some love. They've been holding it down, especially with everything that's kind of come out about the whole quality of their equipment, workout rooms, all of the stuff going on. we got to give these ladies love. Now, this, these brackets are more than likely going to be the ones that you have majority of your favorites remaining in the tournament. So we're going to dive out in the region that has the number one overall seed with Stanford, and they'll be playing in the Sweet 16 against the five-seed Missouri State, and that's going to be occurring on Sunday. So a lot of these Sweet 16 games on both the men's and women's side are going to be occurring this weekend. So if you are on spring break, start off your spring break with some college basketball. What a time to be alive. You get to have a break, watch some basketball, kick back, relax, enjoy it. It's going to be amazing. So again, top-seeded Stanford play the five-seed Missouri State. And at the bottom part of their region, we have the number two-seed Louisville Cardinals who survived a run from the 7th seed Northwestern in the round of 32 to make it to the Sweet 16, and they'll be playing against the number 6 seed Oregon Ducks. Now, both of these games that I've mentioned will be occurring on Sunday, March 8th. When you look at the Stanford game, that'll be happening at noon. That'll be noon Pacific Standard Time. And the Oregon-Louisville game will be happening at 4 on Sunday. As we look down to the bottom region, we look at the number 1 seed South Carolina Gamecocks as they'll play the number five seed Georgia Tech. That'll also be occurring on Sunday and that'll be at 10 Pacific Standard Time. And at the bottom part of their region, we've got the number two seed Maryland Terps and they'll be playing the number six seed Texas Longhorns. That again will also be occurring on Sunday at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And the other region, and this is for any casual fans, you're probably wondering where is UConn? 
when we think about the women's tournament and we think about potential championships, we normally associate Gina Oriema and the Huskies and the national title picture, and they find themselves in the Sweet 16. That will be occurring on Saturday at 10 as they play the five-seed Iowa Hawkeyes. And that'll be, again, on Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. And in the other matchup in their region, the number two seed Baylor Bears play the Michigan Wolverines on Saturday at noon in their region. And to cap things off, in the last region to cover, we're going to talk about the number one seed, the Wolfpack of NC State, as they play the four seed Indiana Hoosiers. That will be occurring also on Saturday at 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And in the bottom part of their region, we have the two seed Aggies of Texas A&M playing the Arizona Wildcats on Saturday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And if you were to select any team that is not a number one seed to make a run to the Final Four and potentially the national title game, look at the Aggies of Texas A&M. They completed a regular season undefeated streak. Uh, They finished undefeated in conference undefeated, which has happened handful of times more significantly by UConn and some teams out of the SEC but you could potentially see an SEC Final Four between South Carolina and Texas A&M which is my pick to see in the Final Four along with the top two seeds and the other half of the Final Four between UConn and Stanford those are going to be some exciting games to watch so again if you're into the lady side of the bracket please check that out some exciting stuff to look out to but now we transition over to the men's side and the men's side (laughs) this is going to be one of those where it did not go chalk and this is the highest total seeded sweet 16 in college basketball history and when we look at the men's side i'm going to highlight a few guys that i want to point out as some of my standout players of the tournament when i look over at syracuse you think of buddy buckets buddy Bayheim of syracuse who's averaged over 27 in the tournament. But more importantly, in the last four games, Buddy Beheim has gone for 30 or more points, including in the ACC tournament. And he is shooting the lights out, including 13 of 23 from the three-point line. And especially with how Syracuse has been playing, obviously they play a style that's very synonymous to them, but very different from others that they play a 2-3 zone. And we're going to dive in a little bit of that in certain matchups and my predictions of what's going to happen. But Buddy Beheim of Syracuse is one of the players I want to highlight. And another one from everyone's Cinderella team, Oral Roberts, Golden Eagles, Max Asmus. Now, again, I say Asmus despite the fact that his last name is spelled A-B-M-A-S. But Max Asmus is another guy that's averaging 27 and a half points during his two games, including the two upsets against Ohio State and Florida, where he put up 29 and 26 in those two games. The leading scorer in the country, and of course, Buddy Beheim. Those are two guys that I want to highlight for you guys. But when we look at the matchups in the Sweet 16, out in the West region, we got the top seed overall in the Gonzaga Bulldogs playing Creighton, the five seed. And in the bottom half of that region, we've got the six seed USC Trojans versus the seven seed Oregon Ducks. And that's a Pac-12 matchup that is occurring out west. When we look at the east region, 
we've got the number one seed Michigan Wolverines playing the four seed Florida State Seminoles. And then in the bottom half of that region, we got the two seed Alabama Crimson Tide playing a double digit seed, the first one, but not the only one, the Bruins of UCLA. And again, you've probably heard a few Pac 12 teams that I just mentioned. The Pac 12 went a perfect 7 0 in the first two rounds and find several teams in the Sweet 16. Out in the South region, we got the number one seed Baylor Bears playing the five seed Villanova. And in that last matchup in the South region, like I mentioned, everyone's Cinderella team, the 15th seed Oral Roberts Golden Eagles going up against the three seed Arkansas. And finally, out in the Midwest region, we got the eight seed, the loyal Chicago Ramblers with Sister Jean rocking like always, playing the Pac-12 champions, the 12 seed Oregon State Beavers. And finally, we're closing out the Sweet 16 with your matchups between Houston and Syracuse. And all those games will also be occurring this weekend, starting on Saturday and Sunday with the Sweet 16 games. Now, we're going to break down a little bit more as far as previews, matchups, who I think is going to win each Sweet 16 game and projected Elite 8 games. So when you look right now, we're going to go back to the top. When you look at the West region, Gonzaga's been the best team in college basketball this year. I do not see that trend going away. I find Gonzaga beating Creighton and moving on to the Elite 8. And again, I'm just going to point out a random tangent question that you guys can answer in the comments section down below. If you were to rock any sort of style uh, facial hair or hair. You have three options. You can either rock Drew Tim's sick, sick handlebar mustache. You can either rock um, Matthew Meyer from Baylor, his mullet, or you can rock Crutwig's mustache from Loyola Chicago. So those are your three options. Please hit it up in the comment section down below if you are a video viewer on YouTube. So check that out. But again, Back to the actual thing that we talk about, which is basketball and not hairstyles. Gonzaga rolling on to the Elite Eight. And then in the bottom half of the West region between the Pac-12 teams, USC versus Oregon. When you look at the run that USC has been on, especially with the Mobley brothers, Evan and Isaiah, obviously the major publicity has gone towards Evan, in particular to his draft prospects and him potentially being a top five lottery pick in this upcoming NBA draft, Isaiah Mobley has bolstered his draft stock. And what both those guys are able to do as bigs, being able to run the floor, protect the rim, and even Isaiah in the last game against Kansas was able to start a break, find guys, and the way that USC has been shooting, I don't see that changing. So I've got Go Trojans, USC rolling on to the Elite Eight. In the West. So now, in the East region, the number one seed Michigan Wolverines facing against the Seminoles of Florida State. Now, I'm going to have Michigan winning this, although my big concern revolves around Isaiah Livers, their senior forward, whether or not he's going to be returning in time for the Sweet 16 and potentially the Elite Eight games. If Isaiah Livers comes back, now he's a guy that's second on the team in scoring, but more importantly, what he's able to do for Michigan on both ends of the floor. If he comes back comfortably, I can say Michigan will beat Florida State and move on to the regional finals out east. But if not, I still am going to roll with Hunter Dickinson and the Fighting Wolverines out east. And 
the bottom half of that region between the number two seed Alabama versus the 11 seed UCLA Bruins. Now, with the Bruins, they had two guys, Johnny Juzames and the other guy's name. Please pardon me if I butcher his name. And if you're a UCLA fan, I'm really sorry. But Jaime Jaquez Jr. of UCLA, both guys have stepped up, and especially in those games that they've played, especially against Abilene Christian, those two guys have been mainstays for UCLA as they've been making their run. But I'm still going to roll. Yeah, I said it. Roll. Roll Tide. Alabama making it on to the Elite Eight. And we're going to move on to the South region. In the South region, Baylor versus Villanova. Yes, Jay Wright has gotten his team into the Sweet 16, despite the fact that they lost their senior guard, Colin Gillespie, to a season-ending injury. And we were asking questions as far as how are they going to be able to respond. Obviously, Jerome Robinson Earl has stepped up his game, but I do not see them getting past Baylor, especially when I talked about Gonzaga and how balanced their team is. They have multiple options. When you look at Gonzaga with Corey Kitzbert, Jalen Suggs, and Drew Tim, Baylor has that same versatility where they have five guys, and including Matthew Meyer coming off the bench. They have guys that can make things happen on all parts of the floor, are able to bring the ball up, create plays. I don't see anybody derailing Baylor on their way to the Elite Eight, so I have Baylor beating Villanova. And in the bottom half of the South region, yes, we have the Cinderella team. We've got Oral Roberts, and I know that's going to be everyone's sentimental pick. But I've got to roll with Arkansas and their SEC Player of the Year, Herb Jones. So that's my pick. I got the Razorbacks of Arkansas making it to the Sweet 16. And finally, when you look at the Midwest region, you look at the 8th seed, Loyola Chicago, playing against the 12th seed, Oregon State. And yes, Oregon State has been on a tear, especially with their run initially in the Pac-12 tournament, winning the Pac-12 title, beating Colorado in the championship game, and the run that they've been making, including some people's sleeper pick going into the tournament, beating the Cowboys in the round of 32. I think the the train stops here for them, and Sister Jean and the Ramblers of Loyola Chicago will make a run to the Elite Eight, as they did a couple of seasons ago. And... Finally, if we're going to pick any double-digit seed, and this is the double-digit seed that I'm going to favor that makes a run to the Elite Eight, is in this game between the Cougars of Houston versus the Syracuse Orange. Now, the reason why I have Syracuse moving on into the Elite Eight, two reasons, and again, the biggest thing that Syracuse brings to the table that most teams, especially when you look at either college basketball, the NBA, or high school basketball, the thing that you don't predicate your practices around is running offenses against a 2-3 zone, and especially with the length that Syracuse has on that front line. And when you look at how well Buddy Beheim's been shooting, and not only him, but some of the other guys on Syracuse, how they've been shooting the ball, Syracuse is going to make a run to the Elite Eight. So, I'm going to list you guys the times and games that are going to be happening starting on Saturday. We're going to start off at 11.40 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. we got the 8-seed Loyola Chicago versus Oregon State game, followed by at 2.15 p.m. Baylor versus Villanova. 
then followed by at 425, the three-seed Arkansas Razorbacks versus the 15-seed Oral Roberts. And at 6.55 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, all these games will be listed Pacific Standard Time, the two-seed Cougars of Houston versus the Syracuse Orange at 6.55 on Saturday. And at Sunday at 11.10, we've got the number one overall seed Bulldogs of Gonzaga facing Creighton. And at 2 p.m., we've got the Wolverines of Michigan facing Florida State. And at 4.15, we've got Alabama facing the 11 seed UCLA Bruins. And to cap off the games of the Sweet 16, we got the 6 seed USC Trojans going up against Oregon with the Elite Eight games starting on Monday at 4 p.m. So those are things for you guys to look out for. And again, it's the spring break time. It's going to be some exciting times. But, of course, we're not going to stop there when we talk about the Sweet 16. We're going to go into the Elite Eight and the projected teams that I think are going to be advancing to the Elite Eight. In the West Regional Finals, the Bulldogs, the number one overall seed, I still find them making it to Indianapolis in the Final Four, beating the Trojans of USC. Again, when you look at the balance that the Bulldogs have and you look at what Coach V has done with that team, all season long. And it's not only just the big three that they have of Kispert, Suggs, and Tim. A lot of their guys outside of those three are making timely shots. I don't see that changing, especially with how fluid and efficient their offense has been despite USC and their length in the front court, in particular with the Mobley brothers. I don't see them giving them as much fits to potentially create an upset with the number one overall team. And as we move on to the East Regional Finals between the Wolverines and the Crimson Tide of Alabama, again, the biggest question mark is going to be whether or not Isaiah Levers is going to be available for the Elite Eight. If he is, I'm going to have the Wolverines comfortably making it to the Final Four. And even without Isaiah Livers, I'm still going to give the edge to Michigan. Again, and I know the Big Ten didn't represent themselves as well as they did in the tournament like, say, the Pac-12. But when you look at the best team that came out of the Big Ten, Michigan, they've been battle-tested throughout the regular season and the conference tournaments. I still find them making their run into the Final Four. As we go into the South region between Baylor and Arkansas. Yes, Herb Jones, the SEC Player of the Year in Arkansas. And the big thing with Arkansas, not only are they playing the best defense that they played all season long because their their hallmark, their calling card has been their three-point shooting, but they've been stepping it up on the defensive end. But despite that, the balanced attack of Baylor and their offense and Coach Scott Drew, what he's able to do with them, I see the Baylor Bears making it to the Final Four. And finally, everyone's Cinderella darlings right now in the Midwest between the 8-seed Loyola Chicago versus the 11-seed Syracuse. I got to roll with Sister Jean. I got to roll with the Ramblers. They have guys, including Crutwig, that were a part of the Final Four run from a couple seasons ago. I like to take veteran leadership over... The hot teams, say, for example, the team like Syracuse with Buddy Bayheim. I'm going to roll with Sister Jean. I'm going to roll with the Ramblers of Loyola Chicago to make it to the Final Four. So here are my Final Four teams. And we'll see if this plans out the way we were hoping for it. In the Final Four, we got the Bulldogs of Gonzaga, Michigan Wolverines, the Baylor Bears, and Loyola Chicago Ramblers. 
Now, you guys can throw it in the comment section below. Out of these Sweet 16 in the Elite 8 games, what game are you super excited to watch? What are you guys most anticipated looking forward to? Is your Final Four teams the teams that I selected? Or who are the four teams that you have going to the Final Four? Please let me know in the comment section down below. Again, I want to thank you guys so much for your guys' endless support, for checking out these this episode of the NBB Podcast, along with the first three episodes, which you can find on this YouTube channel, as well as the Google Podcast, Red Circle, Spotify. You can find all three episodes that have been already posted there, including this new episode number four that is happening right now. You guys are amazing. Again, huge shout-out to my new logo that was created by... A person I like to call my sister, Molly Camacho. You are a superstar. You're the best. I thank you so much. If you guys need any art projects or anything done that is art-related, please hit her up. Her Instagram link, at Illustrated by Molly, will be down in the description down below. And, of course, the music, the intro, and the outro by my boy, Raza. You two have helped make this podcast an awesome start for me, and you guys are ridiculously awesome so I have to thank you guys so much but again that's been the last week and a half of basketball what do you guys think about the trade deadline what moves are you excited about who do you think is going to be the most profitable team that comes out of this trade deadline and what do you guys think about these last 20 some odd games what teams do you think are going to be part of the play-in tournament Please let me know. Also, you know what that comment section's for. I want to hear from you guys. If you guys have any questions that you want answered on the next episode, hit it up right there. I'm super excited about it. I'm your host, Joey Jurgo. This has been the Nothing But Backboard Podcast. I will see you guys in the next episode. Peace.